Okay, Garth, who the bloody hell are you? Well, today I happen to be the director of power products and engineering for AudioQuest. Okay, so what 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 does that entail? Um, as much as they can possibly make it entail. <laughs> Essentially, I create the uh, the power products pretty much from the beginning. You know, I'll work with our you know like um, uh, CEO and owner Bill Lowe, a marketing team, sales team in terms of getting a little bit of, you know, like a background research, making sure that there's buy-in on any kind of uh, technology that I would bring forth. But uh, particularly, you know, the more expensive units, you know, like the premium quality ones, those pretty much start with either myself or myself and uh, our founder, Bill Lowe. And okay. that's essentially takes uh, a good deal of my time. The rest of it is just essentially administering that, make sure that these products are made and made properly, and working my way around the world uh, in between all that, explaining these technologies. Great. So you, you're good at it, because I've seen you do demos in different places around the world, and I know how good you are at explaining very complex stuff and, and bringing it down to a more basic level, although I don't I realize you can't do that with all scientific concepts. but Today, I wanted to ask you about electrical noise and really how it relates to digital systems. But we can start with the sort of general, you know, the question, what, what is it? What is, what is electrical noise, Garth? Well, the first thing that I would correct, and it's something that's uh, widely misunderstood even within this particular category, particularly amongst audiophiles, mm -hmm. there is plenty of good reason for isolating digital components from analog components. But because of that, the common misconception is we need to optimize any kind of solution or any kind of filter or any kind of noise dissipation of a digital product versus an analog product. There is absolutely no difference. In that regard, they are the same thing. They're the same thing because there is no one magical frequency or one type of noise that takes center stage or is predominant that is going to cause the problem. Where these noises come from? A variety of things. If you're talking about differential noise, and differential is just a fancy engineer's term for asymmetrical noise. If you look at mm -hmm. um, a power cord, you've got a line, a neutral, and a ground. That's typical single, single phase power. The noise would probably be present on all three, but not in even proportions. If you're talking about common mode noise, it would be on all three and it would be in even proportions. If you're talking about noise that is primarily induced on ground, that would be ground noise. All three exist. Where they come from? Well, a combination of essentially two things. Uh, one would be the utility and the fact that um, it generates a lot of it. Most utilities around the world um, use the utility lines for communication. It's, um, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's something they've already paid for the infrastructure. Their opinion for decades is they might as well utilize that. The other thing is, is that um, you've got all of these appliances and you've got all of these machines. And all the way back to the substation where you have an impedance that's low enough 
that you start to um, have decent dissipation of some of these noises, although not all. You have a situation mm -hmm. there where we're all, you know, like sharing from the same pool and the servers, you know, that are in your local university or your local high rise and big business are shared with everybody's vacuum cleaner, everybody's cappuccino maker and so forth. That's one type of noise. Mm -hmm. Those are typically differential, though not always asymmetrical. Then you have symmetrical noise. Symmetrical noise is typically, though not always, um, either induced from magnetic fields. That's relatively easy to get rid of. And today with uh, balanced circuits, that easily takes care of most of that. Um, that's not something that usually affects digital audio and transmission of zero and one packets too terribly much. However, most common mode noise is radio frequency induced. And that's a problem because mm -hmm. that is nearly 12 octaves of potential noise. And the higher those frequencies are, the harder they are to get rid of, the higher they are to linearly or evenly dissipate. Mm -hmm. Why do you care about any of this? Well, if you're trying to transmit a packet of zeros and ones from one you know, like a place to another place, as long as all the zeros and ones are there, you're done. The noise would be seemingly irrelevant. And every electrical mm -hmm. engineer that would argue that case, I'll shake their hand, I'll give them a big hug. They're right. Got to do a little bit more homework though, because you've got a couple of other things to consider. One is the time relationships of those zeros and ones. That's going to be an issue. And there's another issue. If it so happens that on the load or receiving end, you're going, you're transmitting zeros and ones, but it's ultimately in a circuit that is going to find its way to a D to A converter. That means all of the induced noise that may or may not have affected your zeros and ones um, essentially are going to find their way to your analog circuit. And there, they are going to create transient modulation distortion. And you are also going to have noise masking. With the noise masking, you can potentially lose up to a third of your low-level signals. And anyone who cares to do a little research and a little work through digital difference files and through spectrum analysis, you can prove it. If you're talking about um, uh, slam-limited audio, this problem is relatively minor. If you're talking about wide mm -hmm. dynamic range, anything from 80, you know, 70 dB, 80 dB in the digital domain, obviously we're, we're, for decades now, we've had 90 dB capability. And with, you know, like a, a non-PCM, we can do up to 130 or so, I believe. So in situ I've used that mm -hmm. in studios. So in a situation like that, that makes a huge difference. And also, what do you mean by, because I can ask a question at this point, what do you mean by induced noise? Is this the noise that's generated by error correction circuits or is it somewhere no. else? No, this is an insidious level of noise. This is not self-noise from the circuits themselves. This is not noise generated mm -hmm. by the digital circuitry itself. This is noise that's mm -hmm. a Trojan horse that is being picked up by the cables, that's being picked up by the chassis that's being 
you know, essentially picked up into the circuits that is coming through the power supply as current noise. Now, power supply is going to try to dissipate, turn into heat, a certain amount of this noise. And the best power supplies mm. do a pretty admirable job, but they can't get mm. it all. Nothing gets it all. The best cables are well shielded, but they can't get it all. You're going to have capacitive coupling mm. even through the shields. You're the best chassis. I've, I've seen in our industry some chassis out of thick billet aluminum, a CNC machine, mm -hmm. just incredible works of art. And the theory, amongst other things, sometimes they're looking at vibration and dampening, but oftentimes they're also looking at a very low impedance. And at 60 or 50 hertz, it is a very low impedance. But at 2.4 gigahertz, it's aluminum, and that's not a low impedance at all. In mm. fact, it's a pretty fair conductor at best at frequencies like that. So you have problems. And you also have a situation where if we go back 40, 50 years ago, and the worst problems we have with induced RF noise, for example, is from, you know, like a FM radio frequency modulation, AM radio amplitude modulation, mm. maybe shortwave maybe um, uh, television. We've got some high frequencies to be certain, but uh, you have a situation where they're still low enough and the way in which they propagate, it tended to be that those were easier to deal with. Good common practices, a well-designed chassis, um, a well-designed circuit, a well-designed power supply, um, well um initiated, you know, like a, an executed grounding systems throughout those circuits. If you paid attention to all of mm. those things, you could deal with induced radio frequency noise pretty well. Uh, and in fact, you know, a manufacturer with, you know, like a few dollars or a few euros could easily address those problems. Today, you've got a wider proliferation of satellites. You've got new technologies and homes, businesses, and um, theaters such as Bluetooth, you have cellular mm -hmm. towers. The frequencies are higher. Now, that's a problem because if you look at the size of a lot of these transmitted waveforms, if you're talking about picking up those waveforms perfectly, you know, full waveform or half wave or even quarter wave, they're still relatively large, mm -hmm. but I'm not looking at picking them up properly. I'm just looking for a noise component. Poor fidelity from that original signal. I have no multiplexer or anything in my amplifier or preamplifier that's capable of giving you back the original signal faithfully. But I don't care about that. I care about it showing up as a noise. And where that's concerned, mm -hmm. you're talking about tiny fractions of a inch or centimeter that's why this is so important because when you're talking about a sine wave that is you know less than a thousandth of an inch or you know like a tiny tiny fraction of a millimeter where you can take your business card put it on its side and imagine 200 sine waves end to end that's what we're dealing with now with something like bluetooth 
So in a situation like that, the, what's called the capacitive coupling is incredibly you know, like uh, important because at this point, it's relatively easy for something that small to get through, despite the fact that the manufacturer used best practices to try to eliminate as much of this as possible. We've come into a period in history where there's limits to how far we can go. So it just requires that we take much, much greater steps where power is concerned, where mm -hmm. um, grounding is concerned, where cable design is concerned, um, uh, chassis, you know, like a design, circuit design, everything. All these things matter, you know, like greatly to us because at a time where we're expanding dynamic range, where we're not on a high fidelity recording, limiting our bandwidth, we have to understand that if you look at spectrum analysis, most of the harmonic series, most of the leading edge transients, the air around the instruments, a lot of the imaging, so much of the reverb tails, so much of the reason you can tell the difference between a Hamburg Steinway and a Young Chang, you know, like spin it piano, you know, B flat, mm -hmm. still B flat. You know, like um, uh, a C7, you know, like a um, uh, minor chord is, is the same on both instruments. You can, you know, like you can see that um, uh, physically. You can, you know, like um, look at that through spectrum analysis. But if you look at everything that follows those initial notes, and if you adjust for volume, you're talking about signals that don't even look like they're the same universe because all the harmonics that follow mm. are incredibly different. But mm. those harmonics tend to be a fraction of the original fundamentals volume. What we key into is low level detail. So what you're saying is, is that the, the noise that enters our audio systems can mask that very fine harmonic structure detail. Absolutely, absolutely. A great deal can be lost right. and what's not lost is being distorted. Can I ask you a couple of very basic questions for, for listeners that might not be fully across everything that you're saying. So for example, can noise enter my DAC through an ethernet cable that goes into the streamer that yes. feeds the DAC? Yes, because so long, so long as the cable has conductive material in it, even, even mm. through the shield, that is an antenna. And not only, not only is it an antenna, but you have something that's called mm. um, capacitive coupling. Now, if you, if, uh, let me explain what that is. Mm. If you yeah. have like the most simple basic cable you could have, a basic coaxial cable um, that, that we've all known has been used in broadcast forever. You've got some kind of a shield. It could be foil. It could be braided. And then you've got a, an insulator. And then you've got a center solid conductor. That insulator mm -hmm. is your dielectric. But, you know, like about, that's the technical name. But there is capacitance. You know, like, um, or, you know, it could even be air or nitrogen or something like that. But anyway, the, the mm. space between the live plus or hot conductor and your return mm -hmm. or ground or negative, whatever you want to call it, whenever you want to label it, um, mm. that is that is the capacitance that's there. And people that have, you know, studied this generally in, in, in school or basic electronics and so forth, that's fairly well understood. But what's not always, you know, like understood so well is that if you get a signal, you know, that, that's picked up as a noise onto any of those parts, and let's say it, it, it's picked up by the shield. Well, the common belief, you know, mm -hmm. like when you're studying this 
on the most basic level is that, okay, well, that, you know, that that shield is going to chassis or that's going to circuit ground and circuit ground is where noise goes to die and therefore it's done its job fabulous. Well, the problem today is that that's not true. If the frequency is high enough, it's capacitively coupling from that shield to that um, live you know, or plus conductor you know, like instantly. And it's happening multiple times across the entire length of the cable. And even though we're transmitting zeros and ones from one source to a load, again, we still have a situation where, you know, like um, sometimes we can affect, you know, like um, uh, through transient noise um, uh, timing relationships, but as important, if not even more so, we also have the situation where, as I said earlier, we're going to find our way to eventually to an analog circuit. And that's where this noise that's being passed into um, uh, the circuitry is going to be an issue. So if I get this right, the noise enters, for example, you know, it, it, it sort of attaches itself to the Ethernet cable, comes along the Ethernet cable into the streamer and then into the DAC. But it's only when it enters the analog circuitry of that DAC that we start to hear its, its negative, its, yes. its negative yes, influence. Exactly. It's the output stage of the DAC where, where we could easily measure this. Now, I, I believe as well that before we hit that, that we are probably um, due to transient noise um, issues, we are probably also affecting uh, the timing relationships of those zeros and ones to some degree as well. But what do you, what, so can you clarify what you mean by the timing um, relationship? I would, I would say things like jitter. Okay, so it so the noise can also um, cause jitter to cause a greater instance of in jitter. In some instances, right? I think that's you know like um, uh, very likely. Yes. What about buffers, though? Don't I mean I'm just arguing from the point of view that I see on my YouTube comments an awful lot. People say, "Well, uh, a PLL buffer will sort all of that out." Oh, and and, and a common mode circuit, you know, like going back to uh, you know like the, the first or possibly second decade of audio circuitry and then later video circuitry mm. will cancel all common mode induced noise, except for the noise that it doesn't cancel mm. and it doesn't address. Because the problem is, is that this is what you get to when you go into these paradigms of here's the way a circuit works, it's perfect, done. I yeah. wish that were the case. Every, you know, like pass apart, for example, every transistor, you know, like, um, uh, every, well, it's, that's an active part, excuse me, but every capacitor, every, you know, like a um, resistor, every inductor, they're all perfect. God, that would make life easy for me. If only nothing really is when mm. you look at it. Now, is it good enough for 80%, 90% of all applications? Absolutely. Because to the average, you know, like human being, an MP3 through a 10 euro set of earbuds is fine. They're completely immersed and engaged in the music mm -hmm. and they don't really necessarily desire anything better. Now, for those of us who do mm -hmm. have greater expectations and are more uh, emotionally and intellectually curious than that, you're going to have to work a bit harder. So electrical noise can also, as you've said before, come in through the mains power socket and therefore from the uh, not may does and and in torrents 
I mean, that's that's easy. I mean, that that's been known since day one. You can measure this with a with a with a power meter. You can measure this with an oscilloscope. There is even you know cheap devices that uh, companies you know such as ourselves have used for years, and and outside ones, noise sniffer, you know, like noise detectors. They don't catch it all. It's usually a very narrow range of a few octave of frequencies, sometimes differential, sometimes common mode. But you know, you'll get a nice, ah, you know, when, when you plug these things in to the wall, you can hear. Yes, indeed, there is noise. Right. Okay. So it's it's your job to to somehow either filter out that noise or to to get rid of it or to stop it influence negatively influencing an audio circuit. Is that right? It's both. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, whether you well, almost any topology or circuitry that you use is going to deal with some level of filtering, but there are a lot of ways that you can deal with this. Uh, some people deal with regeneration. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a decades-old technology where you convert your AC into a direct current. You can, from there, go to a battery system or not. And then from there, you create, you synthesize a new, much lower distortion AC waveform. Mm-hmm. And you amplify it. You can create a switching amplifier. You can create a class A amplifier or anything in between, but essentially that's what mm. you're doing. And your limitation there is your bandwidth and your current capacity, you know, like weight and heat. That's one way of doing it. Uh, you can create a, what's called an LCR um, uh, filter network, ideally linearized and, um, uh, and damp for real world bearing impedance. Um, that's one of my favorite techniques if it's done properly. Uh, mm. And you put it in the right places, and that is a you know, situation where you can filter over a wide range of frequencies. That's very important to me because, again, just with radio frequency induced noise alone, we're talking about over 12 octaves. If you add to that all the noise from appliances and machinery, then you're talking about well over 20 octaves. So, but when you say kind of just again, just to clarify for listeners, when you say noise from appliances and machinery. Do you mean that these, you know, like if we're using, if my neighbor's using her vacuum cleaner, uh-huh. is that is that affecting my audio system? Absolutely. In the old days, you know, like um, uh, everybody had uh, terrestrial radios and it was mm-hmm. something that everybody had experienced. These days, it's a little harder to do this. But if you took like an old fashioned, you know, like handheld um, uh, AM radio that had, you know, like a power cord attached to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like um, FM, same thing, but AM, even better. And you were to plug this into uh, the same socket as your blender, as your cappuccino maker, or as your vacuum cleaner. The second you turn any of those motors on and they go into conduction, you'd hear horrendous interference in your broadcast. It's going mm-hmm. right you know, like it's not only magnetically inducing it, but it's also going right through the power supply and it's modulating the signal, particularly in those particular cases, because for something that was inexpensive, it was meant to be, uh, you know, somewhat portable and priced as a commodity product. They didn't really do uh, a tremendous amount of work to the power supply to try to eliminate that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like those were great examples of, of this phenomenon going on. But to uh, a much smaller degree, this still matters. Now, again, this has to do with the kind of dynamic range we're dealing with, because if the resultant audio signal is slam limited 
you know, for a discotheque or just, you know, mm-hmm. like, a, uh, or for a rave, and you're, you're talking about three to six decibels of dynamic range, and, you know, you can see it through spectrum analysis or an oscilloscope, your noise is 60, 70 decibels down, or negative, you know, 60, 70 dBU. Mm-hmm. You have a situation where that noise is fairly academic. It might mm-hmm. affect things through transit, intermodulation a little bit, but for the most part, this is silly and a waste of time. It's an academic exercise. But if you've got noise at certain frequencies that's up to um, uh, 60, negative 60 dBU, and you've got signal that's down at negative 90 or negative 100 dBU, we've got a problem. Yeah, right. So all those signals are being distorted or masked by noise. So with noise coming in either from the wall or from cabling acting as antenna, it enters, you know, my my streamer DAX, and can cause jitter, and can also disturb the analog circuitry in that DAC in the output stage, right? Sure, and and also, you know, like um, you have to understand too that the power supply is going to get rid of um, a decent amount of it, particularly linear power supplies. Um, There'll be more high frequency loss through those than through a switcher. But a lot of this equipment tends to have switchers in it because it's a situation where they oftentimes they need to meet a price for market or mm-hmm. they need to or they desire for it to be small and lightweight. Uh, they might also have a situation where it's a smaller company and they want to make sure that that same piece could be used around the world. All you have to do is change the power cord that, um, uh, that plugs into the back inlet. So in a situation like that, the switching power supply has a tremendous advantage because it's ready regardless of whether you live in an area where it's 220 to 240 volts, 50 hertz, or if you're in another part of the world that's 120 volts at 60 hertz. Switching power supply is ready for all contingencies where that's concerned, but it's going to let a lot more noise through than a linear power supply. But with a linear power supply, you're going to be... um, taking up more real estate, spending more money, increasing the weight. You're going to have to worry about magnetic fields or some uh, circuitry that's going to potentially be sensitive. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to um, consider all those things. But the nice thing about either of those power supplies, and again, particularly a linear, usually you know transformer-based, um, is that they will turn a lot of that noise into heat, but not all of it. And therein lies the rub. You're going to have a certain amount of current noise that's going to make it past the rectification, and ultimately mm-hmm. it's going to skirt, you know, like um, uh, you know, like uh, at the highest frequencies straight through the power supply, and the power supply is what feeds all of your circuitry. So essentially, at that point, mm-hmm. it's modulating your circuit. Ground noise is another issue because if you've got a three-prong AC cord, whether you're in a you know, like a part of, of Europe that uses Shuko or whether you're in the UK and they're using the UK 13P or whether you're in North America and they're using the NEMA Edison, they, they're all grounded usually. And if that's the case, mm-hmm. ground at one spot in the earth is a low enough impedance if it's done properly that, that noise could potentially be defeated. But everything above that, it's an antenna and it's a, and it's a marvelous one. And that is making a beeline for all of your critical components because that ground typically is part of your chassis. 
Your chassis, more times than not, although not always, is essentially your audio circuit ground, your digital ground, and your control ground. It's all going back mm -hmm. to there. And you don't have, for ground, a power supply to try to dissipate or absorb some of that noise. Nope. It's making a beeline straight in. If, it, if you have the circuit that, that's floating independent of your chassis, that would help that issue somewhat. But again, because so many of these frequencies today are so high, it's going to capacitively couple from the chassis into your circuit board anyways. So people like me who live in apartment blocks and are exposed to maybe perhaps a greater number of Wi-Fi networks, are we more exposed to electrical noise than, say, people that you know, live out in the country and their house is on a, you know, like a big block of land and they have no neighbors? I would have liked to have believed that. And certainly I'm 56 years old. I got started as a teenager uh, in my early teens. I was working at a hi-fi shop as a technician by the time I was 15. But in those mm -hmm. days, I was already mentoring with a lot of broadcast engineers. And in those days, I think you could make some statements like that. And certainly, one of the things that we saw at that time was there's always been noise since the very, very beginning. But if we looked at uh, a frequency like, say, uh, 3,000 hertz or 3 kilohertz, mm -hmm. in the mid-1970s, it would have been very, very unlikely to have seen much more than a microvolt at a frequency that low. You know, up around where mm -hmm. AM or FM, you know, like um, a radio were concerned, it would have been considerably higher than that. But it would have been really, really mm. low. It's something like three kilohertz in most places, not all, but most. Today, if you're anywhere near a server room, for example, you can see, you know, like um, uh, in some cases, as much as three volts. Considering that audio's mm. um, line level is 0.775 volts for zero dBU, you got a problem mm -hmm. because if the power supplies and the correction and everything else that we rely on didn't work as well as it does, we wouldn't have a signal to noise ratio. We'd have a noise to signal ratio. We'd be done. Hmm. So all these devices that people argue take care of this, actually they do to an amazing degree. They just can't get it all. So then it comes a question hmm. of how much is enough. That depends on the signal. And that depends on our expectations. But it's going back to your original question of who's the most affected. In 2019 and above, there's no place to run and hide. We got satellites, we got cell towers every place. It's over. Either address this or you don't have anything close to the kind of sound quality or the signal you paid for. Not even close. Garth, that is the perfect place to finish. Thank you for it so very much for that. It was extremely illuminating. Well, thank you so much. I try. 